Hey, I'm Vishnu Srinivas, and you're listening to the Hawkeye Podcast. Joining me today is Palak Patel, author of The Tyranny of Nations. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So would you like to give a short uh, introduction about your background and your role? Sure. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, last year, I wrote uh, this book, The Tyranny of Nations, How the Last 500 Years uh, Shaped Today's Global Economy. Um, presently, I'm a, um, a uh, macro investor. I use a hybrid mix of quantitative and uh, macroeconomic analysis um, uh, for a top-down investment strategy. And prior to that, and prior to writing my book last year, I spent nine years at Fidelity Investments in their emerging markets team um, using top-down macroeconomic analysis to invest in bonds, currencies, and uh, country equities uh, indices. Awesome, yeah. So that's kind of like the direction I want to take us in today. Um, because, you know, I was talking with David Levy on a previous podcast, and he told me that, you know, even before, you know, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, emerging markets were the area that he felt were the most vulnerable right now. And I'm curious, like, what your take is on that statement? And what do you generally feel like the biggest risk factors for them right now? I, I think there's some merit to that. You know, emerging markets are in really bad shape. I, they've been in bad shape since for a very long time now, since 2013. You know, if you, the past four or five years, and sort of what motivated me to write my book actually was this feeling of experiencing slow motion subprime in EM, especially EM debt, where, you know, you'd see country after country, you know, it started with Venezuela, then you had Ukraine, uh, Ukraine the first time in 2015, uh, Zambia, Argentina, slowly more and more countries going from, uh, you know, investable to uninvestable, their country spread, the, um, the interest rate over treasuries blowing out. Uh, and we've just, and you know, just this week, we've seen Sri Lanka and Tunisia come under debt stress. Uh, so yes, emerging markets are going through an extremely stressful period there, but they're in, in my opinion, a known risk. What I really feel like is the true risk, and especially to investors, is what I think has been fundamental to the risk cycle since the global financial crisis and, and fundamental in carrying the risk cycle since the global financial crisis, and that's the tech sector. Um, you know, to me, um, to, uh, to uh, politely disagree with Mr. Levy, whom I really respect uh, and who's, who I, whose ideas I share, uh, I, I share a lot with uh, uh, really, really uh, believe in, um, especially, you know, post-Keynesian analysis that the Levy-Kolecki uh, profit cycle equation, uh, you know, just, you know, it's very heterodox, but, uh, you know, uh, but I think it's gaining more adherence because it's been so good at um, sort of capturing the economy. That digression aside, I think that the boom in the tech sector and we see it in the market capitalizations of the major tech companies, the FANGs, less so Facebook now, but you know, Tesla, NVIDIA, Apple, uh, Microsoft, 
just the sheer weight that they have in the major equity indices. And then the, um, even below, you know, the, the last year, the ma massive boom in private tech startups. You know, last year we saw a massive IPO boom, you know, just a, a myriad of companies IPOing and, uh, and being taken public through SPACs. Uh, you know, I see this as the culmination, the potential culmination of so-called animal spirits that were driving the economy, in my opinion, since 2009. And I just think that when you look at the valuations of these companies, when you look at the sheer weight of them in not just the US benchmarks, global benchmarks, I think on a prospective basis, the risk to financial markets not so much in the sense of, of uh, um, a imminent destabilization, but more so long-term stagnation is uh, retrenchment in the mania that we've seen in the, in the tech sector over the last decade. Definitely. I think that's definitely an uh, area to keep an eye on. Uh, but going back to that idea that you used to talk about like, the known risk of emerging markets, I think that's really important because you, know, you hear all this talk in the news about, you know, liquidity is lower for right now. And, you know, there's a lot of debt repayment that certain emerging markets have to make. But it seems like these are inherent risks that are kind of baked into the whole philosophy investing in emerging markets. So I'm curious, like, how do you navigate that tipping point of when you feel certain prospects might be too risky? Because after all, the whole proposition, I think, is based on a high risk, high reward model, right? Yeah, I, I think I think there is a emerging markets do present a risk premium from the those inherent risks as you say it really depends you know i think in the last decade uh sort of maxim i've tried to abide by is emerging markets right now are for trading they're not for buy and hold and you want to invest when there's fear but we've seen pockets of enthusiasm recur every now and then even in the last decade in emerging markets we saw it you know, the episodes of quote unquote reflation, where you see headlines in the FT, you see headlines in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, is, this the, is this the final turning point for emerging markets? Is this the, is this when, and that's when you don't want to invest. And if you just look at the last year, you know, we've seen, um, you know, where in particular have we seen a, a, a really that things go wrong in emerging markets? I, you know, I mentioned, um, you know, besides the obvious case, you know, look, just look at the tech sector in emerging markets. Uh, you look at major companies like C-Limited, um, Alibaba, you know, really, you know, these were darlings for investors for a long time and uh, Mercado Libre. And these things have had horrible, horrid uh, drawdowns and it's unclear if they'll come back. On the other hand, you've got a company, countries like Brazil, um, especially if you're looking to trade uh, that have done really well. I think Brazil's the best performing market this year. And uh, India's held up quite well as uh, uh, too. Um, it's just that you've, these things, have, you've kind of had to buy opportunistically, especially when you contrast them to something like the FANG stocks where people have done well just buying and holding um, over the last decade. Yeah, definitely. And when you're looking for investment opportunities, how much are you looking at specific companies within a, a country? Because I know that's like some philosophy that some people use. And how are you like, or do you take like a more macro-based approach and look at the country as a whole? I, I very much take a macro-based approach. I, you know, whenever 
especially in emerging markets, people taking the philosophy of, oh, I'm just going to invest in a good company and let things work let things work themselves out. That's gone horribly wrong. You know, there's rule of law risk. You know, you've seen this with the Chinese tech sector, a lot of investors blindly investing and saying, oh, I, you know, Alibaba, JD, uh, funded solid companies. And then all of a sudden rule of law risk rears its head and, you know, the Chinese government decides that they want uh, part of your equity cigarette, they want to dictate uh, what your company's going to do. And, you know, your multifold gain is at snap of a finger uh, gone. And so um, we're, I, I think it's really hard to do that type of investing in emerging markets. Now, that's not to say that um, you shouldn't use top-down views to pick companies. There's every country has essential companies. You know, when I was writing my book, uh, one of the main conclusions that came to is, you know, when you, when you take Econ 101, you learn the perfect competition paradigm. And uh, I think my view of things now is you should learn, look at companies through the lens of East India companies. Every, you know, the major companies in any country are an East India company of a sort, they're national champions. And so when you're investing, uh, sometimes if you can identify systemically important companies, um, Petrobras, for example, in Brazil, um, uh, you can find compelling, you can find a compelling intersection between macro and bottoms up. Yeah, for sure. And kind of speaking more generally about these emerging markets, you know, we see that like these classifications of like bricks of grouping together these nations like Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa as like an entity. In light of like the recent events that, you know, are happening that are transpiring in Russia and Ukraine, do you think that these other nations in this grouping will experience a kind of residual effect from what Russia is going through? Or do you think that they're kind of independent from each other and the grouping itself isn't really that accurate? Um, obviously in the short term, I think just, just technically and, and uh, through the market mechanics of especially large institutional investors sort of investing in EM as a monolith, there is, there can be strong correlation. You'll see, you'll, there'll be, especially there'll be times where there's high perceived risk in emerging markets. So you'll see correlation, um, especially times when the dollar index is spiking, you'll see sort of these things being traded collectively. But longer term, I see a lot of dispersion emerging and a lot of dispersion has already emerged from the so-called BRICS uh, for various reasons, but most importantly, I think geopolitical reasons and, and uh, uh, um, geopolitical context. So, you know, China, Russia, we know what's going on in the news. We know that there's sanctions risk. Uh, India, I think, is in a very unique spot historically. You know, if you look at India's history, uh, through the 1970s, you know, it's been a it's been a non-aligned country for a long time, but increasingly that's becoming difficult for India. You know, right now it's also uh, adhering to its classical, uh, 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 modern non-aligned stance since independence, and it may continue to do so. I think for even the next you know few years, but I think given especially given its tensions with China and the U.S. is tensions with China, 
that's going to be difficult. And I think that will have investment implications. Uh, you know, you see some people in the news saying, oh, you know, India should be careful. It might be the subject of sanctions because of its lack of uh, its willingness to sort of take a strong stand on um, this issue. But I just think that the the U.S.-India relationship is becoming so uh, um, essential uh, as time goes on that I, I actually think it's going to work. Be I, I think that will overwhelm any um, Russia-related uh, sanctions issue, and that has major. You know, already, for example, you look at. And I mentioned the tech sector earlier. You look at uh, some of the major venture capital firms, especially Andreessen Horowitz. They have major investments in India, and while I think there's some speculative dislocation right now and some uh, uh, Kool-Aid being drank in terms of uh, 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 venture money being allocated to India, I think longer term that trend will remain intact. There is a sort of uh, emerging markets TINA trade. There is no alternative um, when it comes to India because when you look at other countries, um, the sort of institutional uh, uh, backdrop that investors need just, just, you know, India is very imperfect in terms of its uh, uh, um, because it's a young country in terms of the uh, institutions um, that make that traditionally made investors feel comfortable in developed markets, but they're still, in my opinion, at least far far more comforting than uh, those that you see elsewhere in emerging markets. And so, I, I, and I, I think this is a cause for will be a uh, catalyst for continued separation. Um, with uh, in that uh, BRICS group. Definitely. And India has kind of been a strange phenomenon this year as well, because even though commodity and food prices are like soaring right now, India recently hit an all-time high in exports of this year. I believe they hit like $670 billion. Do you see this being the case for other economies like Egypt and Turkey that are really heavily dependent on their export markets? Or do you see this as kind of an irregular phenomenon that just happened for India? No, I, yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think it's a bit irregular in India. When I, I think part of the problem is, is sort of, you know, I think macroeconomic sample sizes are, the, the, the macroeconomic sample sizes that people draw inference from, from are way too small. People look at China, and they look at Japan and they look at Taiwan and they say, well, how did these countries grow? They, they exported. That's the way that, um, that's the model India needs to follow. It's gonna, that, that, so they're always looking, it's like, this is finally it. This is India's moment. You know, it's, it's exports are rapidly growing. I don't, I wouldn't call this slightly contrari- contrarian take, but I think there's another route to India's development and, uh, especially when you frame it in this context of this word that's being thrown out called deglobalization. I think in a, in a world that's sort of a world of reversing globalization, India's path to me uh, is going to be autarky for better or for worse. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm more of an export pessimist when it comes to India, but that's not necessarily me being a development pessimist. And uh, there's plenty of examples. Most, uh, the U.S. Uh, and actually, if you go farther back, the U.K., uh, England, 
uh, before it became the UK, who, uh, where they were slower to develop than many of their peers, but they, uh, they, uh, they pursued this autarkic um, sort of uh, independent model that eventually did work out for them. Uh, and so that's the narrative I still cling to in my head. And, and we've seen forces behind that. You know, there's this independent India, self-reliant India movement. Again, I say better for worse because I'm not necessarily a fan. I, I think I think a deglobalizing world is a dangerous one. But if that is, it is what it is. And in that context, I, I think the more likely path is, I, I think this export thing is an aberration. And, and I think it's just a lot of people trying to cling to um, this sort of um, developmental model that we saw in the last 50 years, uh, 60 years, that is still sort of a small macroeconomic sample size for, for in, in the greater global um, developmental uh, um, trajectory. Yeah, yeah, I'm there with you. And also, like, related to, like, the rise in prices that we're seeing being felt everywhere, you know, the ECB announced recently that they're ending their bond purchasing for the period. The U.S. is considering raising interest rates again. Do you see this as like wise economic policies during this time, or do you feel like they're kind of not really addressing the core issue at hand for obviously like inflation? Yeah, I, I think it's extremely misguided. I mean, I can't even. <laughs> uh, sometimes I scream in frustration, <laughs> but I just the last six years, I, I, it's like we've learned. It's like the, the decade of disinflation of central banks undershooting their inflation targets is, doesn't matter. Uh, it, it's almost like they're pr- practicing a religion of sorts. You know, this, this religion of uh, uh, this, this new Keynesian religion where, uh, you know, uh, eventually everything goes towards equilibrium and the economy moves towards full employment. No, I, 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 I think it's extremely misguided. What I think is happening is, is that. I think central bankers disproportionately focus on the real economy. And, you know, despite the mea culpas of the 2010s post-financial crisis and, you know, them saying, we do now, we, know, we really are paying attention to financial markets. We really are sensitive to what's going on in financial markets. I, I still think they remain wholly um, a little too ignorant. Uh, and I, I say this because, you know, you look at the, oil price and the commodity price boom, it's not, you know, we've seen this pattern before. Even when you go back to the 1970s, look at what was actually going on. What happened in the 1970s? I, I, I agree, many people have already said that the 1970s stagflation analogy is misguided and, and inappropriate, and I agree with that. But there is actually something interesting that is a parallel, and that's speculation. You know, the 1970s is an interesting phenomenon is the, you saw the rise of hedge funds. Um, the seminal book, the, the sort of the, the uh, most important book, in my opinion, written about the history of hedge funds, uh, More Money Than God by Sebastian Malaby. I encourage everyone to read it. One of the first chapters is on commodities corporation, um, one of the first hedge funds, Soros and Quantum. What were these guys doing? They were, they were long, levered long commodity futures. You move on to uh, the 2000s, late cycle, 2007, 2008, oil is booming. You know, what, what people, 
I think I think central bankers, you know, they don't pay attention to financial markets, but it'd be I think I think you have to ask yourself, stop and ask, why does this happen? And to me, it's because you're at peak animal spirits. I think, you know, it's it's no different than it's 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 inextricable in my opinion from the boom in tech, you know, just when animal spirits are going, you see rampant speculation everywhere. And that's what I think is driving this commodity boom. And it's a mistake to, see, to try to treat it with um, interest rate increases. And because if you yank hard enough, you might not like the, uh, you know, and we saw this during the, not that I'm saying there's another great depression coming, but we saw this in you know, 1929, where if you, you know, if you try to yank hard enough in the other way, um, uh, the speculative mania will go 180. And, uh, um, and, and in 2007, we saw the same mistake, you know, right before, you know, before the conversation about subprime and Bear Stearns emerging, there was stagflation. If you read the newspaper headlines, you know, people made the same mistake that they, they, they made this so-called category error of confusing um, this rise in, in commodity speculation with flight from um, nominal U.S. dollar assets, which, by the way, is not the opposite of what we're seeing in financial markets. The, the U.S. dollar has soared. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as long a way of answering your question, I, I, I really, I think they're just making the same mistakes over again that they've made. And we, I mentioned the dollar. People have talked about yield curve inversion, um, and and you know, as someone who's been uh, knee deep in emerging markets. Um, his career, this is not like an emerging market uh, inflationary crisis. I mean, you don't see those countries' currencies soaring in this type of event. You don't see the, 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 a, a, a positive correlation between risk assets and inflation. Um, you don't see stock markets booming. Uh, so uh, I hope that <laughs> answered your question. Yeah, definitely. I, I think we can't be this narrow-minded about every single issue that comes our way. Uh, Pollock, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much. And please go check out uh, Pollock's book, The Tyranny of the Nations. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.